Welcome to This Week in Common Sense Starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkulo, and on this podcast, every weekend, minus last weekend, we uh, cover the big stories that appeared during the week on thisiscommonsense.org, Paul Jacob's website that he's been writing commentary for since 1999, five days a week. Since we missed the second week of February 2021, we may cover some of that in this episode, or we just may let it go and cover only the third week of February 2021. Is that clear? I hope it's clear. Let us ask Paul, what are we going to do this podcast? Paul? There was a script last week that uh, that stuck in my mind that I kind of wanted to discuss where the Washington Post, in two separate articles, one was a column, uh, an opinion piece, and the other was a uh, news article about different aspects of big spending ideas that Democrats have. Um, Not that Republicans didn't have plenty of big spending ideas, too. Um, But in both cases, the Washington Post, one, the columnist said that that Biden should say to Democrats who may be concerned about spending that much, hey, this buys votes. This buys votes. And, um, and you know, and then there was another news piece talking about the child, you know, should we give $3,000 a year to every taxpayer who, uh, or non-taxpayer, it'd be a credit, so you'd get it whether you paid any taxes or not. It wouldn't come off your taxes. You'd get sent $3,000 if you didn't owe any taxes. Uh, for every child, one through, I guess it's $3,600 you're talking about, one through uh, six, and then seven through 17, they, you'd get $3,000. And, and of course, Romney, uh, the the quasi Republican from uh, from Utah has said we ought to give more, and and again the the there there's one stellar political argument, and that is that it does buy votes. People like you if you send them money, and um, and and that's that's where our nation's one of our papers of record. Uh, both in the news articles and in the opinion pieces, suggesting why, you know, it just makes sense for once you take power to send money to people, helter-skelter, and uh, uh, you'll get a lot of votes. I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you, what piece was that? It's, uh, it was last week, and uh, I, I meant to go do that, but I... I didn't quite uh, go do that, so. Well, so here's what I'll do. In post-production, that's what it's called, in production, when I edit this, I will insert not only a picture of the page with the image and the title, but also um, I'll actually speak the title so the people on the audio can hear. Oh, you're good. You're good. Because I have no idea what you're talking about. I've blissfully forgotten what happened in the previous week. That that is what I was supposed to do while we had our little break, and I never quite got there. I'm easily distracted. Um, my daughters think I may have ADHD, but it's a late in life onset, I think. And so let me now do the thing I just promised. What is the title of the February 10th piece? It is 
Big Bucks Buy Votes. It's on thisiscommonsense.org. Big Bucks Buy Votes. What reminded me of that piece, which we didn't get to in the great, you know, Snowmageddon or whatever, we didn't get uh, we didn't get to discuss, is this week's piece, member-directed funding. It's not really today's piece because we're cheating. We're cheating for the first time ever. We're a day ahead. I just expect the walls to crumble. You know, you say you're a second ahead on anything. It's like, what's going to happen next? But uh, <clears throat> that is tomorrow's piece because we're recording a whole 24-hour cycle early. I don't know. We are living. We are living the dream. But uh, member-directed funding is an explanatory name for earmarks for Congress. Uh, well, what, what Chris Saliza at CNN, their editor at large, largely wrong, uh, <coughs> what he is <coughs> suggesting is that bringing back earmarks, Congress is going to bring back earmarks, and that doing so will be a, their secret weapon. What a brilliant political move. And he calls it a sneaky big deal, uh, but a massive win for party leaders of both parties. And why is this such a great thing? Well, because it helps keep members of Congress in line. It's important somehow that the leadership of Congress be able to act like, you know, potentates and, and you're, you're going to do this and I'm going to jam this bill through and you're going to vote for it because we're giving, you know, we're raising money for you. That's their, one of their big holds. And here's another way that they don't have to raise the money and give it to the members' re-election. They can simply use our money and hand some largesse to the proper acting, bought-off, Congressman, your congressman, my congressman. That's what this is about. This is official bribery of members of Congress. And again, it's, you know, it's just disgusting that members of Congress would think and act this way. But you, you come to expect it, sort of. But this is the media exalting this as as this is the way it should be this is wonderful statecraft that we're now going to buy off your representative in congress so that that representative will uh will keep in line and uh and uh it's uh it, it, this is all of a sudden the the, the fear of big government, of dictatorial government from Mr. Trump is gone in this, you know, come by moment of everything is wonderful and and government should just, you know, we, we want big, strong leaders who tell us what to do and who buy, uh, buy off these little pipsqueak congressmen who happen to represent most of us uh, with our own money. So is there any evidence that uh, they spend their money better when they're allowed to spend government money on, you know, pet projects? I mean, 
what's the relationship between deficits and earmarks? What's the re I mean, we do seem to be spending a lot of money right now without the benefit of of earmarks. Right. So I'm right. not sure. Right. Are they trying to spend more money? Uh, is it or are they just? Are, I haven't heard them say they want to spend less money there before we have to spend money on the local projects and not on the big stuff. I've never heard anyone well, say no that. No one ever wants to spend less money. I, I guarantee you that. Not in Congress. But um, but it it's it's not that this will, and I, I have heard the argument that this will direct funding because that congressman has his finger on the pulse of his district and knows just who needs to be hit with a million dollars worth of uh, taxpayer subsidy. Um, I mean, it's just a joke, but they do pretend that. But there's no evidence that this cuts spending in any way or streamlines things or leads to massive public policy breakthroughs that save mankind from, you know, Snowmageddon or whatever whatever threat we're, we're facing. So there's, there's nothing on the plus side except what, Saliza puts on the plus side, which is the ability of Washington to function like a, you know, a well-oiled political machine. And that's not what we want. Is this how they're going to unify Americans? Well, it's, it's not unity, but it is, it, is, um, it is united government in the sense that both parties are going to be for it. The leadership in both parties are going to be for it. The members are going to be for it in the sense that, you know, if someone came up to you and said, look, I'd like to hand out just millions and billions of dollars, would you help me identify the people that I could go to? I mean, that's not a bad job. You might take that job for free. Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, depending on the influence you actually had, they, they love it. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, we've done some stuff at, at uh, uh, thisiscommonsense.org on the Arkansas legislature. One of the guys who put a completely dishonest, phony amendment, if you go and you uh, use the search function and do Arkansas, uh, um, oh, I'm going to, his name, his name is on the tip of my tongue. And I, I don't know if I can, John Woods, John Woods. Uh, and I believe it's Woods. I don't believe it's Wood. I believe it's Woods. Anyway, he was a state representative in Arkansas. They had these things. Uh, they were general improvement funds, uh, gifts. And legislators got to give these gifts to different people, deserving people in their district or state or whatever. And uh, John Woods, I know, because he's the guy who put this phony anti-term limits amendment on that was pretended to be a term limits amendment, pretended it was going to take away lobbyist gifts, even though they continue to this day and in record number. Uh, but but uh, and so I remembered him. Well, he happened to go to federal prison being convicted of like 16 counts of fraud and bribery and so on for using these funds and getting kickbacks. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that I think almost anybody who has any political savvy and is honest would look at and say, and if they're not honest, you'd probably look at it in exactly the opposite way. Wow, what a gold mine. Uh, but you'd look at this and say, this is the worst idea ever. We don't want, we don't want our legislators getting down to, oh, I'm awarding this 
multi-million dollar, billion dollar project uh, to you. That's the kind of power that means they're the king, not our our voice, not our representative in Congress. And and you see that major pillars like the fourth estate don't have a concept of government that's healthy, that is it, that's even decent. It's just pathetic that they they you know the, hey why don't you just spend on send money to people and then they'll vote for you next time and you can take over and and you can you can use all this money to buy off other legislators and gee whiz isn't everything functioning just grand so uh, no no pun intended with the grand and trust me I'm sure that the the graft is a lot more than a, a measly grand these days. Uh, so uh, we we should as and this is another issue that unified across the board, and yet we as the public, as the electric electorate, as Americans, haven't figured out a way to to harness what sh what I think is pretty doggone universal unity. None of us like our legislators being bought off by the party leadership, by some some business interest, by some labor interest, by some interest. That's not it's not us. And and uh, so but but here we are, we're going to be going back to uh, earmarks. And uh, so it's just, you know, it's just a, it's just let's go further down the rabbit hole. So do you think they really are coming or is there a way to stop it? I think uh, that they likely are coming. There is a way to stop it. If enough people got up in arms about it, it they'd be concerned. Oh, this could threaten our overall power base. Let's give up the, you know, the the earmarks. There are other ways to do it. There's quiet ways to do different things. Um, you know, there there's a lot of ways, unfortunately, for people to be bribed or compromised or intimidated or or uh, seduced and um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't put them past them that there's other ways they could get at it, but they would like to do it this way. This, this allows them to hold press conferences and cut the ribbon and do all that kind of stuff that is very helpful in taking full credit. And, uh, and they, they would like to do it. And I think that there are a lot of Republican politicians, the savvy, sophisticated guys who will tell you about the inner workings of government, who think, yes, you need this to, to run, you know, Congress and so on. Their conception of running Congress is running Congress and America into the ground. And it's, you know, that's not, that's not what we, we want to do. And, and we want a Congress that functions as a barometer, as a, as a representative of the American people. And there's no way that I mean, think about you know we we often talk about getting smaller districts. The average congressional district is over seven hundred thousand people. That's big enough that you need to be big money. You need to have access to big money or powerful interests that are already entrenched in the process. Uh, that tends to be how it happens uh, to get elected. And in small districts, if you had a lot of uh, congressmen. Well, you know, they, they can't all get, you know, a, uh, hey, they spend all their time getting different earmarks. We want to go the opposite direction. We're not looking 
for a bunch of politicians to go to Washington and figure out how they can cash in. We want to send people to, to Congress to be the, the representative of the people and to hold the line on spending and to set the general course and to hold the executive in check to do the things that Congress has abdicated its responsibility to do for the most part. Um, and, and that's a different role than spender, expert spender, expert law writer that gives a lots of power to the bureaucracy and to the courts so that other people can blame while you term after term write more of these long, stupid laws that are all for the courts to interpret and the bureaucracy to run wild with. And then when things happen, like you write a law uh, like the Patriot Act, and I'm going to forget the number of the, of the section, uh, but, but you allow in certain cases for the intelligence agencies to scoop up information, uh, and they scoop up everybody's information all the time, without any justification. And of course, Congress is slow to ever do much of anything about that. Finally does something, although, um, you know, it's, it's, I think, anybody's guess how much of that continues. In other words, Congress, um, this expert, most expert of all time Congress, this Congress that regularly has House members serving 30 and 40 and 50 years, and Senate people in for five terms, that's 30 years, or six or eight, and, and governing until they're 80 and older, um, this, is, this is government that is not helping to grow America. And it, you, know, you think about when did, when did government function better? When, when do we have better times? Uh, even though we've had some expansion, but it seems to all, all be the Federal Reserve pumping away madly. Um, but, but the last boom, which I remember in the 90s, the tech boom, it was the, you know, did Congress deserve credit? Was it Clinton? Was it them working together? Did it have absolutely nothing to do with them? And was it just that we had a bunch of entrepreneurs and a bunch of business people and they got together <clears throat> and they created some products and they became productive as the Dickens and, um, and we had this huge boom. And of course the politicians could then claim credit. And there was some attempt to hold the line some, you know, had the Republican revolution come in and there were, uh, you know, several people who were, serious in that in that group uh but but anyway that's uh that that seems to be the you know what we can create a lot of wealth but it's it's it seems in recent times really since 2008 that everything is the government's just gonna you know, no need to create anything the fed's gonna keep the economy booming so the, just the right amount of liquidity to keep everything going. If there's a pandemic, don't worry. Just sit at home. Uber Eats will drive by and bring you your food. We'll drop ship the money into your bank account. Um, direct deposit. You can do it all online. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, the, uh, that's the world that they want us to head to. And uh, I don't think there's much there for us.
Well, they certainly do want to, and this is kind of out, of out of field because it gets to the interesting question of the UBI, the universal basic income and stuff like that. They yes. certainly do want to decrease the number of productive people and have everybody else pretty much latch on to them. We live at the expense of the few productive people, and that number of people is becoming fewer and fewer, so it's smaller right. and smaller. And, and that that's very weird. I have to say that it's just a kind of a shock to my system to think that people believe that they shouldn't be productive uh, when they're, you know, in the prime of their lives. I mean, I understand why a 70-year-old isn't going to be productive like a, like a 23-year-old, but a 23 to... 45 you should be fairly productive and uh they're getting away from that winnowing the number of people at least as productive as you have to be and maybe that's maybe that's the problem well, yeah. um and some of us are more productive than we have to be i'm not not necessarily putting myself in that in that group but i'm not you know i'm i'm, I'm playing loose uh but it brings me to where the rubber room meets the road and i should just give credit it's your title it is a wonderful title um, and, uh, and of course, most people who are savvy about political things know the rubber room, New York City, the uh, public schools, if a teacher is absolutely too dangerous to ever allow to be anywhere close to children, for heaven's sake, but you can't fire them. <laughs> because the union won't let you. Your contract says you have to have monsters that you fear ever getting around kids and continue to pay them. So they have these things that are called rubber rooms where they go and hang out all day to collect their salary for not teaching anybody, thank goodness. But not thank goodness that they still get their salary. And we then come to, of course, there's the, the issue all over uh, the country about public schools that we've talked about before, where teachers are not wanting to come back and teach and the unions have enough political clout that they, they may not ever have to. And it's, it's the sort of thing that it'd be different if, I think in a lot of people's minds, if you saw that, well, you know, schools are spreading this, this virus all over, but of course schools have been shown not to be a spreader. And it seems to be like the safest public activity that that you can think of uh so you know but but of course everyone's still going to get paid and we uh, i bump into fairfax county virginia where they're of course not having in school classes it's all online but they are still of course paying all the bus drivers who are not driving anybody around but but wait wait they put their minds, they're tackling the task before them about this craziness about bus drivers being paid not to drive anyone. And so they are thinking about maybe we'll just have the bus drivers drive around every day. And that way they won't be paid for doing nothing. They'll be paid for getting in everyone else's way for no reason and spewing a bunch of carbon dioxide into the air. And uh, you, you just, you, if someone wrote a dystopian novel like this, people would go, it's not serious. It's not that no one would be that silly and ridiculous. It's not possible. Um, we are looking for ways to continue to pay to do things that we don't 
really want to do and 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 think of the climate change the the cons conservation all the ecological you know nightmares that uh, that we all must have all the time and yet you're going to have people drive buses all over town for no reason oh it's uh, these people must someone needs to take the money and the car keys away from these people. And I like the uh, last turn of the knife uh, in that piece because then it turns out that at the same time, Virginia is working mightily to replace all their diesel driven buses with <laughs> electric buses. <laughs> with a huge, huge uh, investment, which really means just a huge subsidy for this. And uh, I mean, I'm not saying that that would be a bad thing other things being equal, but since the other things are not in any way equal right now, it's hilarious. I mean, it's just a weird combination. And this is when they're doing it as well, while there's no buses going around. Yeah. Uh, I, now, I would love to see just, if they want to keep the schools closed to stop paying everybody. I mean, that's what I think should happen. They should have a janitor and they should have a principal and the superintendent, and that would be about it. Right, you, know, you got to keep the buildings okay until they know what they're going to do. But everybody else should go on unemployment. And uh, right. right, that's what you, you. That's what a business would do. They would, right. they would say, look, we, you know, we're we're gonna. This is how much we think we can do to get to the next place where we think the economy is going to be normal and things will be all open and and back to normal. Of course, Florida schools. I don't think we're ever even shut. They are certainly open now. And there is reason within the CDC to not want to close schools. But the Biden administration has had some difficulty this last week uh, talking about reopening the schools. That's been kind of funny. I, I didn't follow every little uh, permutation of the kerfuffle, but uh, there was issues. Were they, were they going to be over one day a week? Was that the goal? Or was all days of the week? Was that the goal? Or it, it got really weird. This is this is all and, and and who who would be shocked? But when government controls every aspect of this pandemic and uses the pandemic to try to control every action and breath taken and movement made by anybody in the country on their property or on public property, when government has that kind of power, well, you're going to expect that. How will things change? Well, people who are in with the new power are going to have it a little easier. So you would think that the first people to go back to work would be the people who go back to work safest. And really, where you have all the kids that need to be in school, supposedly, I'm, I'm not so sure about that, but, but uh, we're told uh, need to be in school, they need to be learning, they, you know, uh, and they're not at, at risk. So it's the perfect place to start. And yet you realize that it may be the last place. And the reason it may be the last place is because the teachers union unions are the most powerful uh, interest group in the Democratic Party. And so they're going to they're going to go back to work when they decide all things being equal. It's time for them to go back to work. And that's how America works. No pun intended. No pun intended. Okay, none taken. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't very good, so. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, 
the panic, you, know, you listen to teachers, and you listen to teachers' unions, but also just teachers talk about complaining about the very idea that they would be made to go back to work in this awful situation. Um, and boy, they seem hysterical to me. And I'm not, I don't like the hysteria about the pandemic. I, I don't think it's wrong. I think people are being not courageous. I think they're being cowards. So I think that generally, I'm not on board with the lockdowns at all. I just, I don't, I don't no, buy any of them. And- and and lockdown has all the wrong words and symbols and thoughts, you know, and it inspires exactly the, the last thing I would want in my society is for everyone to be locked down as if we're all in a prison. Um, I understand some people are going to be much more worried about something like this than I would be. I'm just not, this isn't the type of thing I worry about, you know, and, and I'm sure I worry about some silly thing that somebody else wouldn't be worried about. Um, but it's it's not okay to just because you are really worried to act like it's dangerous to do, you know to follow the science doesn't mean shut yourself down and never go outside again that's not that's not what the science says and of course science doesn't walk around saying things it's actually a concept it's not a real person or anything but um, but it seems to me that we we get to a. Um... Am I frozen? Yeah. Am I frozen? No, I'm. No, I'm not frozen. I'm just. I've lost my train of thought. Well, frozen is the right word to ask right now because we did actually this week have a major crisis, with huge social consequences, which a huge hit to the health of millions of people, and that was primarily in Texas, but actually all around the country. It's it's was here and it's now going to your direction. And that's the big ice storms, uh, yes. really cold weather that's shut down the electric infrastructure to an astounding degree, at least in Texas. It surprised everybody. And uh, that's a real crisis. And I think people should be concerned about that. And you had a piece on the I, 17th I, called End in Ice. Yes. Yes, and it's, um, you know, we don't know all the ins and outs of uh, Texas uh, energy policy, but we do know that Texas, like so many other places, is doing more to get supposedly green energy, which, you know, so many things done in the name of green energy, like canceling the pipeline, seemed to me that if if I thought climate change was the number one problem in the world, I would not want to cancel the Keystone Pipeline because it's going to be a net plus, not a net net negative. It's just insane. So, um, but but so much of our energy policy seems to be designed as if we have a religion that teaches us to hate fossil fuels and to love costly, supposedly green energies. And to not have any sense of how to do arithmetic and figure out, you know, what's working or what's not working. I think we would all like to have (coughs) energies that produce a ton of electricity very cheaply and don't harm the environment in any way. That's what we'd all like. But there are different trade-offs. And it seems to me that we ought to make those with the idea, well, and, 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 some people might disagree with my attitude about this. I think I think the, the bottom line is it makes a lot of sense to have energy and to not let our system crumble. Um, but 
years ago, as I was hearing some of the, you know, conserve and so on, I use a certain amount of energy today. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing that brilliant people, many of them put together the whole system we have. It's a wonderful thing. I'm sure it will fall apart and there'll be new systems, but I want to use more energy tomorrow. I want to use more. And the day after tomorrow, I want to use even more energy. I want my computers to have more memory on them and to go faster. I want, you know, and and this idea that somehow we're going to tie all our hands behind our back energy wise is it, it's dangerous in this world and it's foolish. And the problem, you know, there are ways to, you know, protect the environment. The more wealth we have, the more energy we have, the better for the environment. Not that, not that you couldn't, you know, you can, you can do things where you treat the environment very terribly. And most of the time, that's, you know, the two places that you think of in the world where they just rip apart the environment are Russia and China, at least in the last 50 you know, years or so. And, um, and those are where the government has all the control. So we, we need more energy. We need to stop this complete insanity about we're going to buy all electric cars. We're just gonna spend all this money because it'll create new jobs. The people telling us that when a politician says something about new jobs, they're talking about something someone else is going to do. You just always know that. They don't create any jobs. And, and so it's, you know, to see Texas in that situation and to realize that, and it's not just recently, years ago, we were out of power for four or five days. Uh, in the summer, nobody was at any health risk or any problem, uh, inconvenience, certainly. But people could be at health risk. And you start to wonder, do I need a generator? Do I need different things? And it's like, wait a second. You know, uh, and I, I started to talk to people about, you know, don't we need a little bit more? We've got these big monopolies. They're making big money. They pay decent dividends and stuff. Um, don't we need to make sure that they're actually functional in, in snowstorms, in heat storms, that if something goes down, they're quick at replacing it? I mean, come on. And, and it just seems like, again, we don't have any measurable control. We don't, I don't feel like we have any control. Um, the power company, you may be out of power for eight days. Oh, shucks, they're trying to get to it. I don't want to live in a place where you're out of power for eight days and they're trying to get to it. I want to live in a place where, oh, we're only out for 45 minutes and they call to apologize. That's, you know, and and is that government? Well, all of these are, are government created and allowed and saluted monopolies with public service commissions that are supposed to make sure that they treat us nicely and so on. We need some different models in that, and uh, and we need a lot more choice. And because we need an infrastructure that's going to actually be there in a pinch, 
And and when when a libertarian who's you know you, people always say you know if libertarians who would build the roads? Well, we're for building infrastructure um, because we want to have highways and we want to have electricity, and we we need people in public office who are for electricity in the in the winter and in the in a hundred degree weather in the summer. Yeah, I um, as. We may have mentioned earlier, I was without power for at least 20 hours last week, which is why we didn't do this podcast then. And uh, yes. I talked to my little sister yesterday, and she's been without power now on her ninth day. And she can't, they can't leave her their area. They're actually still socked in because so many trees have fallen around them. So let's just say that their county isn't doing the county-like things that you'd expect them to do. Right. You know, right. Uh, and I have to admit, the reason we got our energy back within 20 hours or 21 hours or whatever it was, was be partly because my neighbor came out with his earth mover and got rid of all the trees that had fallen on our road. It wasn't the local county guys. The POD, which we have a POD, which is a, you know, it's a government kind of body that they do elect officials, you know, and they have POD, Public Utility District. Uh, that's supplying okay. the electricity and the water for where I live. And uh, there were PUD guys going around fixing power lines, but they didn't have anybody to cut off uh, the trees that had fallen on the road. So yes. Yeah. in our road, it wasn't done by the PUD and it wasn't done by the county, though I'm sure it was done by the county somewhere else. On our road, it was done by my neighbor. I went out right. there and took the big limbs that I could, but there were trees that I wasn't going to be able to move. You know, There's a some limit to my ability to pull things off the road. You know, there are so many people, I'm not one of them, but there are so many people who are handy to have around. They know how to do things. They've got tools and they know how to use them and they can clear brush and they can do all kinds of things. And and if they explain to me what to do, I can even help them. Um, but uh, but it's the kind of thing where, like I remember the, the big uh, flood in, in New Orleans and and, you know, it just seemed to take forever to get help there. And you, you know, I just knew being from that area of the country generally, that if you put out a call for everybody who thought they might be able to help out and who had a pickup truck that they could hop in and come on down and help, you would have had an army of people and they would have been helpful people. And, and so we, we so often, we did a piece last year, uh, early in the pandemic, about the health national health service in britain and the fact that they were having some big big problems and they didn't know what they were going to do they're just being overwhelmed and they put out a call for help and i i can't remember the number but it was something like six hundred and seventy-five thousand people contacted them and gave them their contact information that they would volunteer to help the national health service um, and it's it literally oh, completely overwhelmed. They expected nothing like that. But, you know, the truth is, we, I remember after 9-11 and, and uh, President Bush telling people to go shopping, that's what they could do to help. We, you know, we, we so lack leadership. And I'm, I'm not a big, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not a big, oh, what a wonderful 
event and you know i'm not a big into government and statecraft and and uh and so on but leadership is a real quality and having people in government who can show some leadership having some connectedness to where you know you you don't feel completely divorced from your government and the american people i think are great people I, I sometimes wonder why our government kind of thinks, no, no thanks, just send us money, you know, we'll, we'll get everything uh, without having to deal with you guys. That was my big critique of Trump for the pandemic, is that instead of preaching courage and asking neighbors to step up to help neighbors and to help with the crisis, he relied on experts. He had he, he talked with Fauci daily. He talked about you know getting a vaccine and getting it through the system really fast. He, you know, he talked about various things that experts could do, but almost nothing that the people could do. And I think this was a huge error. And this set up the lockdown mentality: is that the people don't need to do anything. There's nothing to be required. Right. right. And right. we mentioned uh, because both I, I, I blogged and you blogged or you worked this as common sense on the what happened on 9-11-2001 in New York City, that the biggest heroes in response were all private citizens, basically. There was a whole flotilla, or flotilla, I don't know how to pronounce the word, of, of private boats that rescued people from Manhattan and brought them over to the Jersey Shore to Staten Island. And the evidence that in a time of crisis, most people actually are helpful and not riotous is really important to know. The, and, and it's like anything else, the more you respect people, the more respectful they are. The more that you trust people, the more they trust you. The, you know, it's, it, life is one of these relationship building exercises and our government officials, I won't call them leaders, are they've built no trust they have it's hard to manufacture enough on your own with the way that they destroy trust constantly and that's been true in this pandemic and i think i think trump had a huge opportunity any person would have a huge opportunity to be coming on television on a regular basis and developing over time trust saying things that comfort people, but being real and telling it like it is. And he wouldn't have to go out every day, but, but it would have helped if your solution was to listen to whatever Fauci says. And, and you can certainly understand where someone's going to go, look, I don't, you know, I don't understand, you know, diseases and I haven't studied that. You, you want to listen to a lot of expertise, but it would have made a difference if, it would have been handled in a way that people felt like they did have a role. And you could do that without saying, look, if you're, you know, if you're compromised in any way, going to your neighbors to help them make sure they're doing okay is probably not a good idea. You can call them on the phone. You want to, yeah, but, but here, there's all kinds of ways to help and, and setting some of that up. Well, uh, we haven't covered two other pieces that came out this week on thisiscommonsense.org. Uh, one was, should oppressors host the Olympics? Which was the question of, what are we going to do about this Olympics coming up in 2022 that China is hosting, of all people? And the other was uh, your appreciation of Rush Limbaugh. 
Yes. Let's let's take Rush Limbaugh first. I didn't always agree with Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is a conservative. He's not a libertarian. I'm a libertarian. I'm I I you know lean conservative. I think in a lot of different ways. Uh, but but you know we we disagree on on a number of issues. I always liked Rush Limbaugh, and I liked listening to his show. So I'm I'm biased in that way. But I've always marveled at how he's presented when I read a story about him in the newspaper or when I see the TV news cover him. And um, I think he's a very smart, very thoughtful guy. I think he's funny. Uh, They always see him as bombastic. Uh, And the piece we're talking about is the dittos now in order. they always see him as this raging shock jock, screaming, you know. Uh, and if you listen to his show, that's not what he is at all. He's very calm. Um, I won't say he hasn't ever gotten excited about something or so on, but he's just so many talk show hosts. And and uh, I listen to less than I used to, but traveling around the country a lot, a lot of times. You know, I want to listen to so who's the local, what talk shows are they getting? This politically, it makes some difference. And um, and he, you know, so many talk show hosts, they don't like the way the caller said. Some, I mean, they're they're nasty, they're mean. It, it just it, to me, it's I guess it's good radio to some people. Maybe it sells tickets, uh, sells advertising, but but it's not good radio for me. And um, on the other hand, you get in as a caller to Rush, and you're in the inner sanctum, and he, you know, would always be very respectful, uh, calm. You know, he might disagree, he might, you know, but but uh, you know, just just had a a much better attitude, I think, about about that. This doesn't have to be loud and angry, and his show was a fun show. He was a fun guy. Um, I uh, remember uh, uh, not wanting to listen to him too much. Uh, I first heard him right before the Gulf War, uh, I guess, in what was that, 80? When was was the the first Gulf War? 88, 89, probably 89. 89, yeah. And so I didn't like him too much during that. He was very pro. Wait a second. This is when uh, uh, Iraq, it would have been 89, 89 or 90. I thought it happened after the fall of the Soviet Union, though. And that would be 91 then. Yes, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Because that's my memory, is, and it's for entirely personal reasons, uh, why I would remember that. Yeah. Because my, I, I had a boss, who, by the way, so I'm going to insert this. I know no one wants to hear me, but I'm going to insert it anyway. <laughs> I had a boss who said, well, now that the... Soviet Union is falling down. You know, the the Berlin Wall was falling down, and now that we no longer have that enemy, who's our next enemy? Right. And I and right. I turned around and, and told him, "Oh, Islam." And within about yeah. le- in less than a year, they were fighting uh, fighting a war in the Middle East. So I wasn't surprised about that at all, and I was not on the side of the of the fight. <laughs> so. No, but uh, but I I was not in favor of uh, of defending. Uh, the emir of Kuwait, who, who was cross-drilling into uh, uh, Iraq's uh, uh, fields. Yes. But um, 
But other than that, I've I've usually you know even if I disagree, I I have uh, listened to him through the years and and really liked him. He was he was I'm going to say that he was the John Stewart of the Republican Party in the 1990s, and I say that because I have often said that John Stewart, The Daily Show, was the Rush Limbaugh of the Democratic Party when they came back and took the took the uh, house in 2006 and um and he he just was the energy most of the politicians were not very exciting they weren't going to create a movement and rush created a movement i mean people were talking about you go to a political event or do you listen to rush it was it was something else he was very strong on the contract with america and he was very strong on term limits and we expected um, uh, that there'd be a lot of Republican folks who would all of a sudden defend the Republicans that they don't need to they don't need to do term limits right away, do they? Not too strict, not not right now. Uh, and and so it's interesting to me that uh, Rush Limbaugh was one of the people who really gave it to the House Republicans. For not being better on term limits in 1995 after winning the 94 uh, elections. And, um, and then years ago, I did a column called The Two Americas and just did a takeoff on uh, uh, Edwards, who... Uh, John Edwards. John Edwards, uh, the North Carolina senator and VP candidate with Kerry. And, and then when he was running again in 2008, or, or maybe it was actually in the in the 2004 where he did his two Americas, the rich and the poor, and so on. And I I did a two Americas on the America that is ever increasing wealth and innovation and creativity and all the abundance that you get from freedom, and an America of being subsidized and regulated and earmarked and uh, and Rush Limbaugh, uh, well, he read it on the air, read it, about 250 words of it, and um, uh, we got a lot, of, a lot of calls, a lot of hits on the website. So, uh, uh, and and you know, he basically said, "Hey, this is is the right way to look at where we are right now as a country." Unfortunately, I think we may be headed to the the wrong way, and in part because of John Stewart. I mean, I think John yes. Stewart was actually very important for the development of the attitudes that led to uh, the revival of a really nasty leftism. Uh, the contempt for Russia's audience, we can just say, put it like that, John Stewart bred the contempt for Russia's audience, which meant for almost anyone who kind of liked Russia's message. And Democrats aren't committed by their policies to be against Russia's audience. They don't need to be, but they are. And they are in part because of John Stewart. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, I've never thought about that. I, I do think that one of the things that John Stewart did that, uh, that dramatically upped his reach is that he could make fun of Democrats. And if you looked at it, it wasn't quite the same sort of making fun of always. No, it wasn't. 
uh, and all kinds of different things. But he didn't go, you know, so much of I used to watch a, a decent amount of TV in the evening, switching back and forth, seeing what they're saying on some of these cable political arguing shows, as my wife calls them. Um, and they were fun. It's kind of fun to do that. It's not much fun to do that anymore because the shows are boring. The shows are uh, Tucker Carlson sometimes brings in somebody like a Gr Glenn Greenwald, sometimes talks about an angle on big tech or, or China or other things that I, I find interesting that I don't think I would have gotten somewhere else. But for the most part, they're all talking their teams, you know, to their choir. It's it, you used to have somebody representing the other point of view. You you don't see that hardly anywhere anymore, and and you see it more on Fox than you do on MSNBC or CNN. Um, almost never, right? You see them having you know somebody who will who will represent uh, a different point of view. CNN has a great tradition now of putting on a panel of three or four or five people, all who of whom agree in every possible way. That's yes. That's a great, yeah. great innovation in panels. <laughs> so dumb. Well, in our last one, I would encourage people to go to the website, and this is commonsense.org. Should oppressors host the Olympics? Um, I don't think so. Uh, but there was a, a good column, Ila uh, Salmon, uh, and uh, at, at Cato uh, wrote something at Reason uh, and and just looked at, at what they're doing and the fact that, you know, these Olympics are political and we we don't want to play into that. And, and I don't think the United States of America wants to play into it, but I think you and I and everybody listening, uh, you know, as individuals want to make stands to where they don't play into it. Um, and, and so it's important that we know what's going on in the world, whether we can always do something about it immediately or not. It's good to know. I just realized we didn't make a reference to the uh, famous Hitler Olympics because Berlin hosted the Olympics before World War II and uh, it was a big issue and uh, made an interesting movie, propagandistic movie for Hitler. Yes, and, uh, yes. The Chai Nazis may be aiming to do something similar. Well, it's uh, I sure wouldn't want to go. I, I I would hope Americans would not visit Beijing for the Olympics, um, and and you know companies would not do it. You know, I'm sure that some of them will, but it's it's the sort of thing you know. In America, you always think of those as the Jesse Owens Olympics, but I suspect that at least in some part. That's U.S. propaganda after the fact saying, hey, it isn't so bad we went because Jesse Owens whipped up on everybody. And, you know, he was a black American. And so, you know, Hitler's racial views and Hitler's other political views, you know, were, were you know, handed a, uh, a heavy whooping. And, uh, and so that's, that's great. But... I think it was a normalization of what was happening in Germany. And of course, you know, in 1936, I'm not sure that people knew as much as maybe they maybe would have known in 37 or 38. I'm not a, you know, historian on, on uh, Germany in the, in the 30s year by year. Um, but, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not wrapping the United States because, oh, they went to the 36 Olympics. I'm worried about other things. 
But I, I think we do know those things about China. And so I don't think we could make that same argument. Maybe they knew those things about Germany then too. I think I think somehow if I would have if you and I were alive in 1936, I think we would have been urging people not to go to Berlin for the Olympics. But uh, but since we weren't and we're alive today, uh, don't go to Beijing in 2022. Well, that pretty much wraps up the week. Well, till next week, and hopefully the uh, the electrical grid and. Uh, and Mother Nature will cooperate. Oh, and before I go, two things need to be said. One is that the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, as we call it, was August 2nd, 1990 to February something, 1991. So I was in the ballpark after I wasn't. And the next thing I should mention is that I'll get in charge of these plosives next time. I'm not going to go through and take out all the plosives. My plosive filters broke on my mics, so I have to buy new ones. Sorry about that, folks. Anyway, go to thisiscommonsense.org for Paul Jacobs' weekly commentary. <laughs>